Welcome to The Last Thing I Saw. I'm your host, Nicholas Rapold. It's been a little while since I've done an episode about recent movies in theaters, and so, before the onslaught of new fall releases, I thought it'd be nice to tackle three big summer titles. We start with Annette, the long-awaited feature from Leos Carax, starring Adam Driver and Marion Cotillard, The Green Knight, David Lowery's medieval fantasy, and last but definitely not least, Old, from the mind of M. Night Shyamalan. To discuss the movies, I'm happy to have two guests. Joining the podcast for the first time is Adam Naiman, a contributing editor at Cinemascope, whose work is published in The Ringer and Sight and Sound. Adam has also written books about Paul Thomas Anderson, Joel and Ethan Cohen, and the movie Showgirls. And for my second guest, returning to the show is Beatrice Loiza, a fellow contributor at the New York Times, whose work is also published in many other publications. Welcome to The Last Thing I Saw. We've been talking a lot on the program uh, about festival films. Uh, we talked about Billy Wilder last week. Um, but it's been a while, I think, since we've actually uh, talked about things that are in theaters, you know, that people can actually see. And I'm especially pleased on this episode because uh, I have a guest that I have not had on the program yet, uh, and that is Adam Naiman. So, Adam, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for taking the time to chat. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. And actually, I just realized that uh, one thing we were going to talk about, maybe, I, I don't know, we can talk a little bit about the end or just do another episode later, uh, was I think we had both been thinking about Brother from Another Planet, uh, for one reason or another. I forget why. Uh, well, it's never a bad thing to think about John Sales. I think there was a weird yeah. period earlier this year where Sales was kind of coming up on, on, on Twitter a little bit. And I think I mentioned to you that I'd been rewatching a couple of his uh of his films yes. but it's all, it's always been my 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 twitter handle and um mm-hmm. i've got a big poster for brother from another planet that i'm actually looking at right now in in my office an original 1984 poster and just a movie that uh that i really love and i feel like there's going to be a re-reckoning or a reevaluation of sales at some point maybe he has to make something new for that to happen but uh just a, a really undervalued american filmmaker i think yeah, I, I have to agree with that. It's it's someone who I think basically gets taken for granted. Yeah. A lot of people kind of making movies that are um, faded facsimiles of things that he's been he had been doing for a while. There, um, there, there's an amazing piece that got reprinted in that Kent Jones book, Physical Evidence, where he writes about Sunshine State, which is a mm. movie that very few people have seen and you know never gets re you know, it never gets put on TV. I, I'm sure it won't be redistributed on DVD or anything, but or, or, or streaming. But uh, yeah, in about 2,000 words, he makes the case for sales if he's not a great visual director, just someone who's actually knowledgeable and interested in politics and economy and who's regionally specific and who has a real sense of drama and, and dialogue. And that's even for like one of his middling movies, right? Mm. And I, I sort of feel like uh, it would be great to see it come in a more critical appreciations of sales as an actual leftist political filmmaker with those kind of bona fides. Cause I think when you said faded facsimiles, I think we settle for a lot of mediocre stuff in the vein that sales was, was taken for granted for doing for like 20 years. Great, yep. great director. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that down the line, I'm sure. And my other guest on this episode is someone who has uh, thankfully indulged me a lot in coming on the, on the podcast. So I appreciate her taking the time again. Uh, and that's Beatrice Louisa. Uh, welcome, Beatrice. Hey, happy to be back. <laughs> I, I don't know. I thought it would be a, a fun time also to talk about things that are coming out because there happen to be, I think, like two or three films in semi-rapid succession that I think kind of preoccupied uh, debates for a little bit. Maybe we can start, I don't know, we can work our way backwards in a way, I guess. We could start with Annette, uh, which is now available everywhere asterisk uh on amazon um but you know also had a th- has had a theatrical release uh leos carax's new film which we talked a bit about for our can coverage uh, on those episodes but um i don't know adam uh what did you make of the movie well i kind of wrote my way through my feelings on it i published a piece today the day we're recording for the ringer which is like sort of a review of annette but also just kind of a consideration of Driver, of Adam Driver, both in it and some of the other roles that he's had leading up to it. 
because I think the film is kind of inconceivable without him. You know, it's billed as a romance, and he and Marion Cotillard both have this above the title billing, and it's not to denigrate her contributions or her presence, because I think she's very important to the film. But I mean, Driver really kind of carries this thing and carries the character and, and brings a lot of Caracs into it, almost to the point of physical uh, physical impersonation. And he has to inhabit this anti-hero character and he has to sing or do the bulk of the singing and the very kind of uh, spoken singing kind of Sondheimy stuff, which is an overly melodic sort of like sung through a uh, musical dialogue. He has a huge bulk of that. And so I didn't really have a great time while watching it. And I'm a, big fan of Lovelace Carax, so I, I kind of willed myself through it and some of the whimsy and some of what I thought was was schematic and forced about it. But by the end, I was very moved. And, mm. um, you know, I think that the film is obviously very oceanic and tidal in terms of its emotions. I mean, the water imagery is not subtle. The, the set piece takes place at sea dur- during a storm. I think those are the kind of emotions that it's trying to access, which is very operatic. And I suppose that if it gets there in the end for me, um, some of those alienation effects and some of just the the frustration I felt kind of don't matter, right? I mean, a a movie like Holy Motors, I was fully all in, thought was extraordinary and funny and wonderful and endearing and had a great time and would have recommended it to anybody. And um, I didn't have that experience with Annette. But in the end, you know, it, it, it got me and I have to sort of, suggest in that sense the way the movie's designed and worked and executed I, I, I guess is very successful yeah I, I like the ocean imagery there because the movie you know for me had had an undertow effect which is that you know there's kind of front-loaded the idea of just the spectacle of it the oddity of it intensified by the fact that they're you know at least nominally these these kind of fictional celebrities so everything's a little warped in that way but yeah by by the end there was just this undertow of darkness, sinister part of human nature that takes over for me. But Beatrice, you've written about it uh, twice, as we just learned. Um, <laughs> and I mean, what did, what did you make? Was, was Adam Driver a big touchstone for you as well? Yeah, no, I mean, I think he's definitely an important part. I mean, I, I kind of had the opposite reaction to it. I find, I mean, I was very, very moved by it. But I mean, I found myself um, very just like immersed and, and sucked into the whole fantasy realm of it all. I mean, like to me, you know, it's a film practically like devoid of subtext. You know, it's it's very Baroque in nature and it's it's not like creating meaning from any sense of like original plot or like interesting dialogue. It's, it's very, you know, intentionally restaging this like classical tragedy in which, you know, this, you know, victimized woman dies at the hands of this fiendish man which is of course like the subject of so many films you know throughout history um but you know the feeling you know that I think he does manage to summon I mean it's really just a matter of Carax's formalistic bravado um that you actually feel anything about the film and its characters like he really asks you you know to lend yourself to this fantasy and trust in the power of his images and you know it's you know, it's it's not really about creating the illusion that um, these things are real, like a lot of CGI does, which of course he actively, you know, critiques here. I mean, like here in Holy Motors, his pivot to digital filmmaking also kind of doubles as a critique of um, the sort of lifelessness of digital filmmaking. But you know, he he contrasts that with just the fact that he's able to, I think create these really like convincingly emotional moments from like the sheer interplay of, of light and movement and, and sound. And it's, you know, for me, it like induced very just like raw sort of emotion that's kind of beyond language or like anything I'm able to interpret about it. And, and that's kind of also why I find Adam Driver so important to it because, you know, it, it's, it's less a matter of like him, you know, convincingly delivering dialogue or what have you. It's, it's literally just like, how his body is in motion throughout the film and like this sort of bracing quality to his performance. That's like, you know, how, how do you even describe that? I, I have found it very difficult to, um, to sort of articulate my feelings about his performance um, because of that. 
So, so yeah, I mean, I, I think it, it's very special. It's, it's very different from a lot of modern films. Um, and I think really kind of, I guess a lot, asks a lot of audiences um, in so defiantly shirking, you know, interesting narrative or, um, you know, like the songs are just very explicitly like repetitive announcements of what the characters are feeling. You know, there aren't these like conventional things to latch on to it. You actually have to surrender yourself entirely to what's going on there. And like, maybe it helped that, you know, I, I typically am, am relatively like stoned when I watch these sorts of things, which is like kind of part of the immersive experience of, of it all. And, and I think why I so was so easily like swept by it. Yeah. I just want to also ask about, you know, talking to Leo's Carax, which you did for a feature you wrote. Was there anything from uh, talking with him that kind of changed how you thought about the movie or, or you know, gave you some, some insight that you really didn't have just from wa- watching it? Yeah, I mean, I thought it was kind of interesting. You know, he was talking about how this is, you know, obviously the first film that he's sort of collaboratively written. I mean, he wouldn't call it writing. He, like, always insists on the fact that he doesn't actually write these films. He quote unquote, imagines them, which, you know, I don't actually know what that means on a practical level, but, you know, it, it sparks for him that injected a lot of this irony into the film. And for him, he conceived of his role as as trying as best he can to to kill that irony and sort of create a sort of sincere emotion, you know, because for him, irony, you know, I think the words he used were it's a dangerous thing in cinema because it like distances you to the point of like complete estrangement, which obviously that's there's elements of that going on in Annette. But yeah, no, I thought that was interesting that he was actively trying, trying his best, I guess, to remove that. I don't know if he succeeded for a lot of people, but I thought it was interesting. Beatrice is in the habit these days of writing superbly on movies and the interview with Carax was characteristically terrific it was the one that I that you did I was was waiting to read it and I was waiting to read it because of exactly that discussion of authorship because when I was watching the film Carax's authorship is signaled at the beginning you see him you see his daughter. Some autobiographical context for the movie, I think, is very helpful when people watch it or after you, or, or after or, or after you watch it in terms of his relationship, uh, you know, with his daughter and the death of his of his daughter's mother. And then you have like the, that irony of, of Sparks. And I, it's interesting that Carax thinks his role was to kill it because for me, he didn't quite choke it out. Right? There's oh, so much of that sort of uh, recursive, circular jingle-like writing that 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 sparks does like the music really reminds me of um like candor and ebb you know the song scores for things like cabaret and uh chicago and all that jazz except as you say without subtext right i mean the lyrics are really just placeholders for these big feelings or -hmm. something like the who sell out or the the zappa we're only in it for the money like these albums made up of kind of advertising jingles and i guess it was the correctness Mm -hmm. of it the autobiography of it and that incredible um, not just a shul of CG, but that replacement of a of a false character or a, a puppet character with a real one towards the end, which is as old as Pinocchio. It's not, not original, as you say. It's very archetypal. But that stuff, I thought, smashed, smashed through a little bit of that Sparks whimsy because the authorship of the movie is, is really split down the middle. And I think like as a Sparks rock musical, you know, I, I, it's just my taste. Like, I would rather watch Tommy. I'd rather watch the Ken Russell Tommy. But as a, as a, as a Leos Carax film, where he's clearly working through some really personal, private, and I think really complicated feelings, that was the part that sort of won me over. And it was actually reading that interview that you did that sort of helped me get some of my thoughts in order about uh, about that stuff. So that that piece was very appreciated. Great. Yeah, I actually don't know if, I think they might have cut the like irony bit that I just mentioned from the piece, but um, as expected, um, a lot of interesting things were cut. <laughs> <laughs> what was something else that, that you, uh, you want from, from the interview that you want? Oh, you yeah, talked about um, how, uh, you know, Henry's robe, he it was like directly inspired by um, uh, like Sacha Guitry films. Um, you know, like the French actor, apparently like in several of his movies, 
he like begins the film by like introducing his movies and he's at a desk wearing this robe um, and it's sort of <laughs> that nesting device of like showing that this is artifice and that what you're about to see is the film um, which I thought was an interesting detail and yeah he also um, ah, well this isn't like, particularly important but a part that I was particularly fond of he was doing a little sing song like singing some sparks lyrics that was very endearing that unfortunately was cut <laughs> wait you mean he was singing it he was like sing-songing them when he was talking about it with you yeah or... yeah, yeah exactly oh <laughs> that is pretty sweet <laughs> yeah <but> like <laughs> he's not that scary <laughs> well it's i mean it's so interesting to have that that is something that struck me on on, on watching it, is that having the sparks lyrics that I mean, those those songs are often kind of tongue in cheek and having that with, you know, Adam, as you said, what's pretty like personal and like really hard to reckon with, uh, I guess, personal life history, which we don't necessarily have to dredge up, no. but it, it, it does um, it does kind of plug into what I think about the use of the, you know, the, the puppet, which is it's almost like that's a, a distancing device, but not only for the audience, but also just for him. It's almost like the second half of the movie is him kind of easing into dealing with this idea of a child. And then, you know, at the end it is a child. Um, mm-hmm. So it's, it's almost like it, it has to be gradual in, in that way. Well, I thought of how one of the most amazing parts of Holy Motors is the father daughter dialogue, right? Which is not as instantly memorable as, uh, you know, uh, Mr. Merritt or the, the, the marching bands or the Oompa band stuff, but there is a long, dialogue in, in Holy Motors, as I recall, mid-film, where one of the characters who Levant inhabits is a, a father talking to his kid. And so this is obviously, a, a, you know, an aspect of his life that he's interested in approaching in these recent films from these different angles. And I was, um, yeah, I mean, when I talk about the ending affecting me, that substitution of real for fake, not just as a collapsing of the effect, but the idea of what it means as a parent to see your child as a real person, right? not as a problem or not as a manifestation of guilt or not as a, a shadow of your, your, your partner who's gone or as a cash cow or a, a meal ticket. But that idea of a net becoming real, I mean, then you're starting getting into not only Pinocchio, but all these wonderful variations on Pinocchio, like Spielberg's AI and other films that are sort of about that idea of becoming real or, or, or child or innocence giving way to experience, I guess. And I've always try and not play the father of a daughter or daughter's card because it's very boring in in people's writing. I mean, being a parent doesn't mean you write or think well about (laughs) movies about parenting at all. But, you know, I I, I do have two kids, one of whom is a a little girl who's four and a half, five years old. And I had to think while I was being, you know, basically just like emotionally brutalized by the end of this movie, you know, how much that was kind of putting it over the top. And it also should be said that that child actress is phenomenal. Oh my god! Like she, oh, yeah, she, she she she's incredible, which is I think a testament to Carax's direction and Driver's generosity as an actor, because he's such an overpowering actor in this film. As Beatrice was suggesting, he dominates Cotillard. He certainly dominates Simon Helberg, who looks like he's about two and a half feet tall next to him. You know, <laughs> and and in that final scene, it's not just the dynamics of the characters; it's the way Carax and Driver let the scene be directed. Um, he's completely open. Mm-hmm and vulnerable to that, to that child actress. And that duet is, uh, is amazing. Yeah. I mean, there's a way in which when that child actor is on screen, it's like, it's closer than a close up. Like it's so immediate. It's yeah. so rare to have that. Yeah. What, one other thing I wanted to ask about, cause Adam, you were mentioning it as uh, something that came to mind or a point of, of comparison and uh, an unexpected one to me, but probably cause I'm not thinking, thinking out of the box enough. Um, but I, I'd love to hear what you, what you think in terms of Stillwater. Well, Stillwater is peak as father of a daughter cinema, right? You know, as a, uh, yes. as a father of a daughter, I can go to Marseille and, uh, you know, beat, beat the shit out of as many <laughs> locals as I can to prove that she's not Amanda Knox. I mean, that's the, the premise of the movie. But there are these different jail scenes in Stillwater, uh, somewhere in its like a six and a half run, six and a half hour running time, where Damon is chatting with his, uh, his incarcerated daughter, played by Abigail, Breslin, who's been put into jail in France for seemingly murdering her her lover, another young woman who's 
Muslim women and you don't see the media circus. This all takes place afterwards. But the idea is that she was very kind of vilified and attacked in the press. And the movie is Damon believing that his daughter is innocent, right? And so it's very schematic in that he was an absent father and a bad dad who kind of drove his wife to despair and lost all their money and was never there for her. And now that she's in jail and her life is screwed up, he's going to try and be there for her. But then even in Marseille, he meets this other woman who, of course, has this beautiful, adorable, only in the movies kind of daughter. And he gives her the kind of relationship and intimacy that he never had for his own flesh and blood kids. So like on one level, it's the exact opposite kind of filmmaking uh, than Annette. I mean, everything in this movie is subtext. Everything in this movie is meant to be real. There's all kinds of things in between us and the emotions because it's going for a kind of naturalistic style. But in a couple of those scenes and a long passage in the middle where Abigail Breslin's character gets like a day long furlough from jail and goes around the islands with her with her dad, there is a kind of emotional valence the movie achieves that I or gets on that I found kind of beguiling. And Annette was just in the back of my mind while watching it, because whatever else you say about Stillwater, it's not personal filmmaking. I mean, I don't know that for a fact. But it's very kind of national allegorical filmmaking where Damon represents something about America and something about America's role in the world or represents a, a part of America now, this kind of flyover country, economically anxious archetype that he's sort of trying to fill in. And I had no sense of what the filmmaker's stake in the material was, except that it's topical and except that it's, I guess, a movie that you can make. And when I juxtaposed that impulse and the way it depicted a father-daughter relationship, even well-acted and well-written, with what comes through in Annette, there was sort of just no question which of these movies, I think, mattered more. But the idea that both are kind of like a mainstream movie this summer is just fascinating to me, because the mainstream aspect of Annette is just crazy, because it's financed by Amazon, and it's kind of a movie that a, a bigger audience might see. And for a film that weird, which costs $15 million to kind of being distributed like this and being seen not just in a festival, but by regular moviegoers is, I think, you know, maybe a big part of that story. Yeah, it, that I completely hear you on, on Annette. I've probably repeated myself uh, to no end with uh, Garrett Bradley's time. The same thing. Um, I mean, that's, that's unusual in another way. I, I mean, I love the idea of people you know, hundreds of thousands of people seeing time, a movie that I don't know that people would, that some people who would not go to the theaters for would be watching it on Amazon. So yeah, the idea of Annette worming its way into people's brains uh, is... <laughs> Nick, did you, you did see Stillwater, right? Yes, I did. Yeah. You were, you were, were you fonder of it than, than I was? Um, well, we talked, I talked a bit about it uh, on, on our camp podcast. I was fonder of I mean, I also responded to Abigail Breslin and actually for most of the movie, I just, I found that she was just, you know, kind of angry and petulant in this raw way. Uh, and in this, there was something about her, almost a pathology about her that was interesting that she brought to the character that I thought was strong and obviously stronger than Matt Damon, who I, I agree, you know, is kind of putting on, sorry, this is uh, Justin Chang, who I did the can podcast with. He said he was he was in like Midwest drag. Yeah. And so I don't know, in terms of the character beyond that, it just felt like a kind of collection of, you know, sometimes precise, but at the same time, very kind of signally um, acting. So, yeah, I mean, I, I found it, this is such a damning word, but I definitely found it very watchable uh, for, for the second half. I did not like the scenes where he goes to these kind of housing projects. Uh, that stuff was really iffy. <laughs> um, and uh, I think taps into kind of like an old fashioned view of like the underbelly of Marseille, which I didn't really feel like he had the credentials to be illustrating no. in, in, in any real authentic way. But I, I guess I guess the only thought I had, because, you know, I, I tried, tried to justify why I mentioned Stillwater to you before. And the other thing that also links it to Annette is, I mean, it's funny that in St Stillwater has some plot twists that are as absolutely ridiculous as the things that Annette embraces the ridiculousness of, you know, Stillwater sort of tries to put across like these things might actually happen. And in both movies, you have these characters who are tamping down these like murderous secrets, right? Like here are the things that we shove literally or kind of metaphorically into the basement. And I thought that it was funny in Stillwater watching it, that this movie is kind of asking me to accept operatic 
contrivance in the skin of naturalism. And, you know, to, to Beatrice's point, which I think is true, in Annette, it's really quite exhilarating to not have that naturalistic scrim being thrown up on top of you. You can enjoy, or not maybe not enjoy, but you can indulge the pleasures of murder and guilt and punishment uh, without having to necessarily believe it for a second. You can believe in the emotions of it without the mechanics. And I thought that by the time Stillwater gets into that last 30 minutes, which I'm not going to spoil here on the podcast, but anyone who's seen it, including you, know what I'm talking about. It's just like, that's really ridiculous stuff. And it kind of yeah. undermines some of what had been affecting and I think, you know, re- resonant in the first half of the movie, at least. Yeah, it's true. And and yeah, without the, you know, the framework that, that Annette has uh, for that. Um, and, and a lot in Annette, I, I kind of felt like, oh, this is kind of now becoming real life opera in a way where we're just we're following the full-throated intensity of an emotion to wherever it takes us and with adam driver doing that it's yeah it's completely exhilarating even when it's deeply deeply dark so yeah no i i i really do appreciate that as as a comparison with with stillwater which which seems to have basically dropped off the map i mean i don't really see that People are, I mean, we're talking about Stillwater, but it, I don't see that it's, I don't know, maybe it'll resurface. I, really? I was on the street yeah. today and everyone was talking about Stillwater. I could hear it, you know, across the street. <laughs> you keep your ears to the ground. I, I'm just, ear, I'm just ear to the ground in time. Toronto. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, well, um, we can we can go into a different realm of fantasy or fantastical, um, and that would be the realm of The Green Knight. And this is a movie that I think has sort of had divisions of, of opinion, uh, I hope in, in productive ways. And uh, Beatrice, I was particularly struck. I wonder if you want to um, say a little bit about the movie and, and what, what did not sit well with you, uh, which sounds like most of it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe it was a little mean, but um, um, yeah, no, I just kind of saw it as such a like, I, I kind of see it on this, like, A24 continuum of, like, Ari Oster, Robert Eggers movies, which, you know, I, I'm i fine with those movies, but I I just I just found The Green Knight to be, for the most part, falling back a lot on the empty spectacle of, you know, this, like, sur- sort of surrealistic daydream experience of coming of age that, you know, he kind of goes through. Um, I... You know, I, I think that to give it credit, it was probably a bit more like rhythmically pleasurable than sort of similarly hyper stylized genre fare. But I just kind of found that it ultimately, you know, the sort of anti-hero aspect of it in which he's sort of kind of learning to cope with death by kind of reframing his understanding of what like glory and honor means I don't know. I just, I just kind of found it a little empty and um, sort of simplified. And, and I mean, as someone that just, I, I actually really like the like original, very archaic understanding of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. And I wish it had, it had just like been fine with not modernizing itself. So yeah, I mean, I, I'll give it a bit more credit. Um, but I generally just was, was not as impressed as majority of people were i found yeah i mean it sounded like the movie was not casting a spell uh, on you which which i mean it it felt like a movie where it it has to do a little bit of that uh if it's going to carry you along on on the journey because i mean for me there definitely were points where i just was not with it and then the movie really just vanishes in smoke where it just kind of you touch it and it kind of falls apart. Um, I, it also uses chapter headings, which I cannot stand in movies because I feel like it's a substitute for the a- editorial structure. But Adam, have, you've you've seen the Green Knight, right? Or I wrote, wrote, wrote about it at some length, and actually, um, I was I was happy when when Beatrice published her piece, maybe even messenger to message her to the effect that mine was coming out a little after. It's interesting. All three movies we're talking about today, old. Green Knight and Annette, for some reason, the, the publication deadlines I had for them for Ringer, which I happen to write about all three, four, were a little later, which doesn't mean sitting back and being opportunistic and being contrarian at all. It's just always interesting to see the, the you know, what the first wave looks like. And with a movie like Green Knight, I was sort of waiting for a little bit of a, 
of a dissent. And there's a word Beatrice used in her piece that I really liked because it's just a good word, but it's also a sort of very, um, it's the sort of word I think David Lowry would use, which is purloined. You know, it's like, here's an old timey word. It's a slightly ornate way to say stolen, um, <laughs> you know? And I think that, uh, you know, I used the imagery of those giants in the film where he asks if the giants will carry him across. There's that famous quote, sometimes credited to Isaac Newton. Um, I know it because it's from an REM song from the 80s, but it's a standing on the shoulders of giants leaves me cold. And the idea that, you know, to some extent, in order to achieve something, you are you, you are carried up and, and stand on the shoulders of titans, you know, people who've come before you. And I think that Lowry is a little too uh, eager in this film to, to, to stand on the, the shoulders, whether it's John Borman or, or Martin Scorsese, um, you can see him as being enthralled to those filmmakers, or you can see him as kind of just stealing from them. And um, there's a lot that's borrowed and purloined in, in this movie. And, you know, right down to the talking fox. I mean, I tweeted a joke about, I'm glad to see the fox from Antichrist is still getting work. And, you know, A24 tweeted back at me and they thought that, that was very funny. But I mean, it is just from Antichrist. You know, it may have its origins in the original story but the aesthetics that dark daydream look which is kind of unfair to associate with a distributor because distributors don't really make movies i mean film filmmakers do but there is an in-house feeling to it that even if the the milieu and the period and the costumes and the the storytelling are different than an, an ari aster or robert eggers or 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 some of these other filmmakers i agree with beatrice that there's something in-house about it that is on one level very accomplished and skillful. I don't think anyone could watch this and say it's like a bad movie, you know? Uh, and that's not just relative re relativism talking. I mean, it's, it's well-turned, but kind of borrowed, kind of vague, kind of obvious. I mean, the, the place that my mind went while watching it, and Lowry gave a couple of interviews where he hinted at this too, is I, I saw it somewhat obliquely as a sort of climate change movie. You know, I thought that there's a lot you can project into that idea of human endeavor being kind of futile and that, um, you know, time and eternity will will overtake you in the end. But that speech he gives Alicia Vikander at the manor house about three quarters of the way through where she's talking about the color green and how green sort of overtakes and overruns everything. And that's the natural order to things. I thought that in 2021, that was pretty piercing, you know, and I guess reading the film slightly against the grain or reading the film, you know, semi against the grain made it a little more productive and a little more powerful for me. And I guess I got to give credit to the movie for being spacious enough that I can kind of do that, whether I'm right or not, but the ability he shows for image making versus the ability for like pacing and getting this thing from beginning to end, those two things aren't equal. You know, the images are there. But that rhythm and that pacing and that attempt to make something feel like a kind of miniature epic, I, I just didn't think that he had it at all. Yeah, I mean, it definitely felt to me that you could uh, you could tell where he was really, really engaged with with what he was doing and, and finding something uncanny. Uh, and then there were the other parts. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, you know, I, I, I think it's the, the, the strange sort of sensual, sexual encounter. I thought that was really interesting. Um, but there's all this stuff around it. Um, and I don't know. I mean, one can also argue that medieval epics have a little bit of that in their nature, like this kind of like, you know, undecorated cloth that's around <laughs> the, the kind of more interesting parts. I don't know. Um, it's funny. I've been poking around in the John Huston, I don't know, series on Criterion Channel, and I hadn't seen his uh, medieval film. Uh, that he did with his daughter uh, in one of the lead roles, A Walk with Love and Death. Um, mm -hmm. And it just came to mind because you were just talking about how the you mentioned of Green, the Green soliloquy, kind of how that hits uh, today. And, you know, that movie was made in, uh, I don't know, 67, 68, 69, something like that. And, you know, there's a French, basically this, I don't know, <laughs> Soissons Wittard just sort of walking through the medieval countryside, ostensibly looking for the sea, the sea, uh, under the cobblestones, I guess. I don't know. And so that whole movie is kind of shadowed by just, you know, youth movements uh, and of the 60s, which gives parts of it maybe, you know, more of an impact than, than it should have. And there are things in there that are kind of barbed in an interesting way. It, it just sort of makes no bones about how 
you know, peasants are slaughtered. Uh, that's something they really <laughs> hit in there. So yeah, I don't know. It is it is true that the time that that it's in can, uh, has has a certain effect. Um, oh, the one other thing I wanted to mention about the Green Knight was, I guess I do still admire. I mean, of, of all directors who, when they're working with a historical period. There's, again, when he's really fascinated by it, he can be fascinated in a, in a way that's pretty intoxicating. Like I, I, I do like a ghost story, e- even if it is a little kind of starry eyed, the feeling that you get from him of like, what if, you know, uh, what if we were really, really there? You know, I sort of felt it. And, and there's a he has a film in the omnibus that showed at Cannes, The Year of the Everlasting Storm, that also kind of goes back in time and has this memento mori quality that also kind of worked for me. Well, I, I don't know if either of you guys have seen um, Robin and Marion with Sean Connery. Is this film you guys have oh, yeah. seen? Oh, yeah. Long time ago. It's Richard Lester, right? R- Richard Lester. And it, it has the idea that Robin and Marion are, are older. I mean, to, 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 to millennialize it, the premise is, what if Robin and Marion, but old, right? You know, it's like after the, <laughs> the story. And there's such, uh, there's such history in Sean Connery and Audrey Hepburn that that's why the movie's powerful. Right in in the mid seventies, seeing you know seeing these actors slightly aged. I mean, they're not old, but it's that idea of middle age and seeing these characters who are kind of immortal and who've always been played by these young, vital, powerful actors and actresses. Sort of seeing them kind of after the happy ending or happy after happily ever after just has this kind of innate power to it. And it's also a very unchivalric, unchivalrous, and unromantic view of of Arthurian whatever. You know, it's it's kind of grim and bleak which is why Pauline Kael didn't like it. She thought it was very ugly. And I thought that in this film, what he tries to do with Arthur and Guinevere and with Camelot in general, the idea that the trumpets have faded and Camelot has fallen and they're old and infirm and frail. I mean, it's the, the most frail looking, you know, Guinevere you'll ever see. That made me think of Lester a little bit. But, you know, Lester does it through casting and he does it through kind of, you know, just the, the presence of his actors and with with Lowry, it's you know it's 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 lighting and costume and makeup and effects and you know I just didn't feel like he I, I didn't feel like the gravitas was there. I thought he was trying to create it in a way that in a movie like Robin and Mary and it feels kind mm-hmm. of implicit. I, I just remembered you know, something I was feeling while I was watching the movie. I mean, like in the actual poem, it's sort of a mess of events that happen, and like the main action is. When he reaches the castle with, um, you know, the character that Alicia Vikander and um, Edgerton plays, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but like the fact that it was so, you know, discreetly separated into like these various stages and like these different set pieces, I don't know. And like that, in addition to the fact that it had these sort of anachronisms that rang false to me, and then like this sort of spectacular imagery of it all, just kind of felt very like gamified to me, um, especially with something like you know, the tracking shot of, you know, him riding through the field of, of corpses, the battlefield. And that kind of like, all like immediately kind of put me on alert about it, I guess. Um, I, yeah, it just, there was something very, like, it felt like watching my boyfriend play a really like high end RPG at times, which, you know, Again, I'm just I'm being mean about it, but but these are the feelings I've had about it, and just like the immersiveness of of the camera work and like sort of this spectacular quality, like anachronisms that were all kind of like interesting, but like tired and and felt a little false to me, and it just felt gamified in a sense, especially the fact that it was so obviously had these different stages and different set pieces. So yeah, I I said, I don't know what was captured and what was not, but it it kind of felt, and and maybe this just speaks to how often I watch my boyfriend play RPGs, but felt like watching my boyfriend play RPGs. (laughs) No, yeah, yeah, I I got that part. I think it's the first time you said gamified. I immediately thought, oh, wow. Is is that how we refer to when it's like Game of Thrones? Because that's pretty clever. Um, But yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Although I guess in a way, I mean, it's one of those things where yeah, I guess that is kind of the, the background noise for a lot of fantastical, historical, medieval-y uh, things that are that are made. That I guess right. that's something to... Well, this one tries to be more intellectual. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, we can, we can lay the, the Green Knight to rest now and uh, 
to, to decapitate our, our discussion at that point. And that, br- that brings us to one more movie. Um, and uh, that's, I hope it doesn't seem, you know, uh, out of date at this point, but I guess I was simultaneously really just annoyed by the movie, but also annoyed by the discussion around it. So I kind of wanted to hear, you know, <laughs> a couple of bright people talk about it, in, you know, in, in, a, in longer than, you know, tweet format. Um, so uh, that movie is old, the uh, latest M. Night Shyamalan movie, which also, I guess, is kind of a summer hit, right? I guess it did pretty well, yeah. uh, which is not insignificant, because if you ever wonder how it is that he keeps making movies that a lot of people in the critical community make fun of it's you know there it is so yeah i don't know who wants to to start do you just want to go first or (laughs) i'll go first because i'm less eloquent uh yeah i mean i i'm i'm a big fan of m night Shyamalan. i I can't say that old is really like top tier work for me it's sort of middling um but i i definitely enjoyed it i mean I, i think what's interesting about it is it's essentially like structured like like a murder mystery. Um, it's sort of an escape room scenario with you know different characters, you know, being given these different characteristics and, and personalities, and like them trying to figure out how to go about solving the puzzle essentially. And you know, obviously, as in all of his films, really, there's a lot of expository dialogue, which is you know typically the complaint lodged against his films but i mean i to me it's it's also goes in hand with the fact that you know shyamalan is constantly toying with conventions here and you know these genre conventions in this case are literally being put through the parameters of a film you know that involves a runtime and so forth like it's not actually a matter of like it's not really a matter of like biological aging it's it's kind of like it's a bit more um, like a meta commentary on, on filmmaking and, and all of that, to put it very vaguely. But, you know, I definitely <laughs> was a bit lost at the end. I mean, I feel like the common complaint is that the ending is pretty terrible and, and it is. Um, but I mean, I still had a pretty good time. I mean, there's an element of body horror to it that I found very just visceral and, and, and fun. Um, there's like this scene with like crunching limbs and, you know, we witnessed this couple who like they get pregnant and it's an immediate pregnancy and like that was very bracing. So I think there's a lot of good things here and it was great fun, but it's 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 not my favorite of his. I mean the thing that kept getting me about it was the the sense of time in it. I mean that sounds stupid because it is about time and it is about the passage of time. But I mean the sense of the present in the movie, the sense of the present tense in the movie was so unsettling to me that I couldn't really like live with it. And (laughs) I mean, in the, in the abstract, I could now maybe see it as, you know, part of what he's doing. And I can see the conundrum of how do you tell a story about people getting old? It's not like you're going to have like lots of lap dissolves or something, or it's, it's kind of poses a conundrum for, the flow of a movie when you're getting that across that, you know, because around the every, every five minute corner, something else is going to happen. But for me, the way that unfolded, it just felt like here's one thing and here's another thing. And here's another thing. And here's another thing, which was kind of amazing to see because I don't think I've seen a studio movie like that where it's so confined to a space and it's just sort of, it's all, he lets it all hang out like it's just you know that's that's the way he does it he sticks with it clearly no one at any point was telling him maybe maybe this maybe this instead um maybe don't like have someone tilt up a camera up to a cliff in this really awkward way um maybe don't do that and that's kind of exhilarating because anytime you have someone who has that kind of freedom with those kind of big toys of studio tools is almost inevitably kind of interesting you know I don't know. And I hate to say it because I do really love her performance in Phantom Thread, but Vicky Creeps, uh, you know, you mentioned the dialogue. I Maybe there, there was no way that was like, a, maybe it's a suicide mission with dialogue, <laughs> some of the dialogue like that. But it's, I just, I kept stumbling <laughs> over over her. Uh, and, but she, she's not even the only one. Um, but yeah, but then you have the, the absolute perverse perversity of barely teenage pregnancy happening in this 
like wide release movie. Like I couldn't even believe that was happening. Uh, so yeah, I don't know. But, uh, sorry, Adam, I didn't mean to step on you if you were about well, to jump no, in. No, no, it's been fun listening and gathering my thoughts. I mean, I, I, I embarked on a completely unnecessary, non-comprehensive rewatch of about five or six M. Night movies in the weeks before old because I spend a lot of time at home now with a normally aging baby, you know, and I like having things that I've seen in the on in the background. So Avery, my youngest, has now seen, you know, like Unbreakable and The Village in, in pieces. And, um, you know, I kind of want to talk in a minute about that, the taste polarization on things like Twitter and Letterboxd with M. Night, which isn't only along age lines, but maybe the generational thing is worth getting into in a second because it is a movie about aging. But what I was really struck by, and I only got at it a bit in my piece, and it's now all I would want to write about is how many of M. Night's movies are about, like... Um, surveillance kind of vindicating or proving something true you know like the big plot point at the end of the sixth sense if you remember is like the little quest that bruce willis and Haley joel osmond achieve is like showing that that mom was poisoning her daughter do you guys remember what i'm talking about it's not the most famous part of the movie but there's like a hidden camera in the sixth sense where you go to the, the, this ghost that's how she makes her peace with life that her mother was like keeping her sick which is really perverse you know, you have you have in signs, uh, you know, it's video footage of the aliens that sort of proves their existence to the world. And then really, obviously, in something like The Visit, you have, you know, hidden cameras exposing the, the, the grandparents. I mean, the whole movie is a video diary. And then The End of Glass, which is an insane movie, by the way. I mean, Glass is nuts. Whatever you want to think about old being crazy. I mean, Glass is a really wild film that's sort of about the idea that, like, proliferation of unofficial images is the only way to expose the government you know that the government is, is killing off superheroes and keeping people down and there's a secret society maintaining the status quo but like you got to upload shit to youtube in order to, to to stop that and that was all the stuff i found really interesting and old in the end because people talk about how bad the ending is and it is kind of bad and it's politically funny that this summer of all summers, you have a movie where one cop solves everything. <laughs> and th th this summer of all summers, it's kind of like anti-Big Pharma. I mean, that's just all weird timing. But you have this idea in old that like the, the official people who make images and Shyamalan's cameo is very pointed in that regard because he's surveilling the beach. You know, you, you, you have to undo that. You know, the, the, the cop taking cell phone pictures of a computer screen. I mean, just stop and think about that for a second. The idea that this is all going to be brought down because of a vacationing cop pulls out his phone and takes a picture of a computer. Like, did that not strike either of you guys as just hilarious? <laughs> it's, 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 it's hilarious. And it's the part of M. Night that doesn't seem to get out much, right? That's the part of him where you're kind of like, no, that's not how reality works. And that's not how real life works. And that's not how the present tense works. But the idea that this is all basically about, you know, the truth is out there and it's going to be amateurs and people working outside the system who are going to film it and kind of convey that truth, I think is a really, really interesting through line in his work. Because I think he sees himself now as someone who has been abused by that system and now is working outside of it never mind that he still works for studios and that his movies have have big budgets i think ever since the village he sees himself as a really kind of maverick image maker and storyteller he's trying to push against the status quo the glass was obviously a critique of the superheroization of, of of movie culture and that's the stuff that keeps me interested in him that's the the, the unconscious auteur stuff that seems to just keep pushing mm -hmm. through in different forms in his movies that I think is about his own authorship and about his own image making because the other stuff I've kind of made my peace with you know his dialogue can be really ridiculous his his cause and his his cause and effect storytelling is odd the way he directs actors is let's say you know uneven I mean I had a great time watching this movie because and it's so sad to say something like this and it's a version of what I thought about Annette it's made by a human being <laughs> You know, it's not made by an algorithm uh, or, or, or it's not, a, you know, it's, it's, it's not Pixar or Disney. Yeah. I mean, it's sad that we've gotten to that point. But, um, right. you know, what I wonder what what I what I wonder if, if Beatrice has thoughts on or, or either of you guys is if you did pay attention to the old wars, you know, on social media and not just the memes, but the really kind of insanely polarized discourse. I feel like people who were around 
in the 2000s when Shyamalan was being called the next Spielberg, literally, on the cover of Time magazine. Um, they're the ones who feel obliged to be dubious about him. And people who uh, were not there, I think, are willing to, to go to the absolute wall and, and, and mattresses for, for him. I don't know if, if either of you guys think that that's true. Right. Yeah, no, it is interesting because, I mean, I was pretty young when he was considered a hot filmmaker. Um, but I, I very explicitly remember um, knowing that he was a big deal because of the success and, and going to see signs in theaters and then feeling that this was this American you know, auteur, I mean, I was, like I said, very young. So whatever ideas of what that actually meant at the time, you know, you can make of it what you will. But but I always found it funny um, because I, I feel like even as, as a younger person, I, you know, I viewed him very within like the trappings of a certain kind of genre filmmaking as a certain kind of pleasurable filmmaking. So, I, I mean... Um, I, I do think it's interesting that with the promotional push for old, you know, you have this video of him um, talking about the film, saying that, like, you know, he's one of the only people making original, bold, original thrillers these days. And then that's something that's supposed to be, like, enticing for an audience, which I think is actually very smart, because I think, you know, however much we feel that, like, everything we're watching is being consumed by the algorithm algorithms and, you know, by a certain sensibility. I think that there is um, a fatigue that's setting in, at least in some parts. And I think it's smart for him to, to build out that niche. And I think his relative success with this, with what's old, I think is, is a testament to that. <laughs> I mean, I was very, I think that it's a, I think that there's going to end up being a lot, especially now that old's such a big hit and split and glass were too. I think there's going to be a lot of rediscovery or, 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 or a lot more people writing about the visit, which I don't know how you guys feel about, but I think might be his best movie. Oh, wow. And the, I think it's terrific. And yeah, the, it's great. I like it too. I just, a lot of people that I've watched it with are just like, cannot get past the humor of it with the rapping kid. Right. So many people are just like, as soon as they hear that, they're like, we cannot embrace this. We cannot take it seriously. And I'm just like, well, you also could. <laughs> well, I love that the, his little, his little tribute to the visit and old is that he has a rapper named midsize, <laughs> which I think should get him an Oscar, not an Oscar for script <laughs> that there's a rapper named midsize sedan. It's <laughs> stuff's great. But I thought it, that I, was I, hilarious. Hilarious. <laughs> But I, I think that in the visit, it's actually that thing. Because people use these words all the time. I mean, I do it lazily too. This idea that filmmakers, like, you know, they reinvent or they revise their aesthetic, right? And I thought that for a filmmaker who was all about all the things that you were saying, Nick, about camera movement and toys and access to things, to suddenly be forced to make a $5 million movie that he put his house up for. And I'm not trying to turn him into a hero and an indie filmmaker. I mean, this guy has had resources that most filmmakers can't dream of, right? But he purposely makes this small movie to sell to Bloomhouse. He uses the found footage format, which would seem to be completely antithetical to everything about him being a Spielbergian filmmaker or someone, someone once compared him to Jacques Turner plus Steven Spielberg. I mean, digital and, and handheld camera wouldn't seem to work for all that, but I think he's completely found his language when he made the visit that way. And I thought like the framing and the camera movement and the visual storytelling and that under the pretense of being shot by kids was incredible, especially because it allows for this kind of like uh, poetry as fake amateurism, you know, the camera's in the wrong place in exactly the right way. And I thought that that was one of the, one of the more amazing, like, uh, artistic changing acts I'd seen from a big American filmmaker in a long time. I think it just opened up something in him and unlocked something in him. Not that the guy needed more confidence or less self-awareness, but it just seemed to put him in a, in a sweet spot where he really is making movies sort of just kind of for himself with a huge kind of ego and sense of, as Beatrice was saying, of originality and boldness. And he'll tell you that himself. And I thought all that stuff played out in old in a way that I found pretty, pretty beguiling it's the only time that i've seen a movie in the last year where i really regretted not seeing it in a theater i watched it on a screener link to write about it i wish i could have seen that with people hooting and hollering at the silliness of it and the craziness of it because i i bet it's a fun audience movie i don't know if either of you saw it with people yes definitely saw it with people opening night it was great i mean there weren't that terribly many people in the theater but i it was definitely the sort of film like i'm kind of a vocal theater goer so yeah right on i was um 
definitely very vocally enjoying it. I, I feel like I got the uh, the worst of both worlds because it was a press screening with not a lot of people, but in oh, this no. like enormous screen. Uh, so it, it felt like some experiment was being conducted on on a select group. Um, <laughs> but but actually actually that's not true. There were a couple of people ne- near me who who were like I guess our our voice. But yeah, definitely a movie that if I were to see it again, uh, yeah, it would be as in in a crowded theater. I think maybe we can um, uh, put down old for now. We we may well be returning to it 10 years hence, which could be tomorrow if we are on the beach. <laughs> but at any rate, I would like to wrap up after talking about all these newer films, just with, you know, the, the gimmick of, of a podcast such as it is, uh, which is what you've been watching. Uh, Beatrice, uh, what, was, what was the last... How to say, what was the last non-theatrical uh, release that you saw, whether theater, uh, you know, rep theater or, or at home? Um, well, I won't bore you with some titles. Of, I've been watching these like short feminist films from the 70s for the past week. I don't remember the titles, um, but I think I'll single out a rep screening I went to this past weekend. I went to see Jackass the movie in, in 35 millimeters as uh, part of this like, screens like festival which was great fun because I'd, I'd never watched it before and I mean I don't know how familiar people are with it but um it's it's pretty much exactly what you expect it to be a bunch of chaotic men willingly engaging in acts of body horror and mutilation and just general tomfoolery um in like little vignettes that aren't really narratively tied together at all. It's just like a compilation. Um, but what I found pretty interesting about it is um, the, the print was apparently owned by somebody at Anthology Film Archives. And so the, this, this print of, of Jackass was stored among, of course, Jonas Mikas's personal collection, and which is kind of an interesting way to view the film and the presenter was talking about it as, you know, potentially can be seen as like an instance of, you know, early avant-garde video art from like the 2000s, which, you know, sure, maybe it does qualify as such. Um, So that was the most memorable thing I've seen in in the past week. And there was a a completely packed audience. And at the very front of the screening, God bless them, were a very, very old couple who had no idea what they were in for. And everyone had their eyes on them and, and their reactions to the film. So so it was it was great fun. Wait, did they like it or not? Or <laughs> um, So they had to, uh, there was like a problem for a second where we had to pause and then they, they walked out. But there were only like 10 minutes left. <laughs> so, I don't know. I don't know whether they thought it was over or or not but but yeah that was part of the atmosphere of, of watching it was kind of looking over to see if this couple or how this couple was reacting to the madness they'll, they'll torrent it later to finish it off yeah definitely <laughs> although yeah it's funny i mean to think of that movie and, and and the other jackass movies as yeah some as this kind of simultaneously like you know, other people done these comparisons, silent comedians or something, just sort mm. of one one gag after another. Mm. But also, you know, Kirk Krenz or some experimental. I like how you say they're enacting body horror. Um, <laughs> what what is know. what is what is Jackass? But the follow up to Flaming Creatures. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what I found interesting about the whole experience was, and, and like I'm kind of big into, I guess, body horror movies and like transgressive cinema, and I think. You know, I have a pretty good, you know, stamina watching these sorts of things. But, um, you know, obviously they do some pretty ridiculous things. But, you know, I found the most, like, wince-inducing moments were when they had to do things that were, like, vaguely relatable. Because so much of what they do, you just, like, can't even imagine doing anything like that. And, and you know, that's usually the case with a lot of cinema that does, you know, present these outlandish um, bodily scenarios. But, like, the worst ones in my opinion were almost the most banal ones um like there's there's one called like i forget it's like paper cut scene where he like induces a paper cut within each like uh between his fingers um and his toes and like everyone in the audience was just screaming at that and like even though it wasn't like at all the most preposterous thing they had done it was like the one that was like the most 
relatable, the one that we can imagine the most clearly. Um, so I thought that was an interesting that everyone seemed to be reacting to that. <laughs> it's also funny to to think of the paper cuts as in there as because that movie being part of a lineage of like skate skater videos, you know, of people doing stunts that part of it is just the wipeouts and and like you know um, reacting to that, and then that it comes to paper cuts is kind of it's kind of hilarious. I um, I. I, I defy anyone who was a teenager in the early late to early 2000s to watch the new Jackass trailer without a tear in your eye, because now they're all actually old. They used to pantomime those elderly, like those kind of proto trash humper bits where Spike Jones would say, like, I was Lon Chaney's lover. I don't know if you guys remember that. They would walk into the convenience store and like old age makeup, very trash humpers, you know, or, or very actually, you know, like very very, you know, very kind of like weird aging stuff. And now they're all, you know, 40, 50, and they're getting the gang back together. I mean, I think that the the, the jackass, uh, the, the new one is going to be the the emotional American film experience of the fall, you know, For, <laughs> yeah. s- s- seriously. And I'm, I'm much more interested to hear writing on, to read writing on that than Dune at this point, you know, <laughs> just to, just to drop a pointless gauntlet. <laughs> well, now I, now I really look forward to what both of you you, you write about the the, the next Jackass. Jack yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have to immerse myself. Like I said, this is actually my first time watching the first movie. Oh, they're yeah. so good. <laughs> well, you have to report back. Um, yeah, I'll have to get in the weeds. <laughs> so yeah, so that was the the, the last thing with Future saw. And Adam, what was the what was the last thing you saw that you, you want to share? Well, the last thing I saw, which doesn't count, is for the last forty seven days in a row, I've seen Trolls World Tour. <laughs> which is a really interesting a really a really interesting allegory about poptimism in that the uh the pop trolls accidentally sort of polluted the troll universe musical landscape and now the hard rock trolls led by uh Rachel Bloom from Crazy Ex-Girlfriend are trying to colonize everybody and turn them into rock zombies and they have to be stopped by this united coalition of pop country and, and funk. I mean, it's basically a, a movie in favor of musical diversity. And my, my kid, Leah, has taken it to heart. She now walks around singing Rock You Like a Hurricane all the time. And that's actually the only movie I've seen for the last month because we watch it twice a day. But um, the last movie that wasn't that that I watched in an attempt to wean her off of uh, Trolls World Tour, we watched the first, last night, the first 40 minutes of the original Muppet movie. She really likes the Muppets. Uh, and uh, what a wonderfully self-reflexive, uh, allegorical uh, movie that is. But that scene at the beginning of Kermit singing Rainbow Connection in the bayou, a totally physical effect. You know, in 1979, this miraculous image, how is a puppet's legs visible and how is he finger picking a banjo? Singing that beautiful Paul Williams song, which is such an homage to Garland and Wizard of Oz, you know, somewhere over the rainbow versus rainbow connection. And I sometimes have a lot of faith in my kid because even though she watches Trolls and it makes me want to blow my brains out, she sat kind of open mouthed for the whole 40 minutes of the Muppet movie and just loved it. And this is on top of the, she doesn't know who any of the celebrities are. I mean, I couldn't believe in the first 40 minutes of the Muppet movie who was showing up. It must have gone over my head as a kid. Like, that's James Coburn, that's Madeline Kahn, that's Carol Kane, that's Telly Savalas. I mean, the Muppets have always had that kind of quick change showbiz jokiness. But it also just made me realize that we really do have a lower class of celebrities now because you could not drag me to watch Jason Siegel or Tina Fey in one of these newer Muppet movies. But I'm like, James Coburn is a sleazy bar owner? Sold. You know? Uh, <laughs> Charles Durning wants to open a, a franchise chain of frog legs. And then that made me remember how... Charles Grodin in the second Muppet movie may be the greatest performance opposite non-humans, uh, including Annette. You know, like an even even better example of acting opposite puppets, the scenes between Grodin and um, Miss Piggy in the great Muppet caper. But I just, w- when I was watching the Muppets too, I was watching it somewhat despairingly on Disney Plus because that's who has the rights to it. And so, you know, these sort of mixed feelings where in, in the Muppet movie, it's all this wonderful satire of of Hollywood and how people become famous. And if you remember at the end of the movie, you guys remember who makes them famous at the end of the Muppet movie? They're given a rich and famous contract by Orson Welles, you know? Oh, okay, yeah. (laughs) He's there. He says, give them the standard rich and famous contract. And I feel like the 
the difference between that self-reflexivity in 1979 with the Muppet movie and the self-reflexivity of something like Trolls now, and I'm watching them both, they're not actually on the same service, but it's all streaming, right? And it's all content. Just the, the gap between these two things as self-reflexive kids' movies just feels like unnavigable to me. And like, I'm betraying my age, like I'm 40. And of course I like the Muppets and I'll pay for Disney plus for my kid and watch the Muppet show, you know, for my own enjoyment. But the, the newer stuff just feels soulless to me in a way that I can't, I can't share that with the person who's watching it. Cause pretty bad viewing companion. If you say you're 40, like you're watching soulless garbage, but you know, it is. And the, the Muppet movie just made me feel very <laughs> Muppet movie just made me feel very happy that she was, uh, that she was into it. And at one point she said, who, who, I told her that's Elliot Gould. And she goes, what is Elliot Gould? <laughs> good, good, good question. <laughs> well, I, I can't think of a better note to end on than, than of someone's what? curiosity about Elliot Gould. Elliot Gould yeah. <laughs> There's hope for the future, the next generations. Um... <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, all right. Well, I think, uh, I think we can wrap up there. But before we wrap up, uh, I just always like to point listeners in the direction of where people are writing, uh, what to look forward to. Adam, uh, what's what's a piece you have coming up or that's out now that people can read? Uh, I'll plug. Uh, an, an, I've written I've written another book that'll be out in November on a very obscure American filmmaker named David Fincher. <laughs> That'll be out from uh, that'll be out from Abrams. Following my books on obscure American filmmakers, Joel and Ethan Cohen and and Paul Thomas Anderson. Same book, different filmmakers. <laughs> well, uh, we appreciate you're you're doing the work of discover dusting off these uh, these yeah. lost people. But <laughs> for sure, no, these are these are it's going to be a wonderful book. Um, if, if anyone has seen the, the previous books, um, and Beatrice, what what have you written uh, that's come come out already or, or coming up? Whichever, what do you prefer? I'll just plug my Annette pieces. I, I have an interview with Les Carox that's in the New York Times that you can access now. And in the upcoming issue of Cinemascope, I will have a feature on the film that will be more geared towards you cinephiles out there. <laughs> that's it. Well, that's great. And I, I've, I've, only, I've only read the Times piece, but that it's, a, it's an absolute treasure trove. All right. So uh, thank you, Adam. Thank you, Beatrice, again, for coming on to the podcast. It was a pleasure. And I feel like we'll need to get this band together again because it was a really, really great. Trolls World Tour with the band all, all back together. Can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Bye. You've been listening to The Last Thing I Saw with your host, Nicholas Rapold. If you like what you heard, please consider signing up at rapold.substack.com. Special thanks to the Minarets for the opening music from their song, Montserrat. Thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>